0: Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land presented by Great Days Outdoors magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co-op. Alabama Farmers Cooperative has been serving gardeners, farmers, and everyone in between for 85 years. From backyard gardening to large-scale farming and everything in between, your local co-op has what you need to be successful. Since 1936, Alabama Farmers Cooperative has provided high-quality products and friendly service to community members and local farmers. With over 60 locations to serve you and 85 years of experience, you can count on the co-op. For more information and to find a location near you, visit www.alafarm.com. And also brought to you by... Great Days Outdoors magazine. If you're frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines and tired of reading content meant for the guys up north or in the Midwest, you need to check out Great Days Outdoors. Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, Academy Sports and Outdoors, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. I'm your host, Joe Baia, here today with my co-host, Butch Theory. And today, Butch, we're going to be talking about something that you and I both have a problem with on our properties. Hopefully not a huge problem, but if we don't do something about it, it may turn into a big problem. We're going to learn today how to identify and control Kogan grass. I hate this stuff, man. It's everywhere. Everywhere I look, I see it. And I was really pleased, you know, when I bought my place that I didn't find any, you know, I was like, all right, I had no Cogan no grass around. And just this past spring, I was up up at my place, driving down the the county road, the road that separates my property from the neighboring property. And sure enough, there on the neighbor's property is a big, big patch, not big, but a patch of Cogan grass, enough. an established yeah. patch of Cogan grass. Big enough to worry about. All it's got to do is make it 15, yeah you know, yards more and. It's on yeah. my place.
1: It's not very far from from what I understand. This stuff can spread pretty easily. Yeah. Got to be you, careful.
0: You guys found some on your place too, huh?
1: We did. Yeah, we found several patches. Uh, we found a pretty big patch. I guess that was two years ago. Now we clear-cutted that place over there. Found a pretty big patch and uh, nuked it, and it's still not gone. Yeah. We're still going to have to do some work on it this year as well. well hopefully... So it's been two years we've nuked it.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully you did it right. There's a right and a wrong way, I think. To, to apply herbicides if that's what you choose to do. There's also some non-herbicide methods you can use. Um,
1: well, we we weren't sure how to do it, so we got a professional in to take care of it.
0: Right. Well, I know it's not a one-time-and-done kind of thing, but you know, today we're going to get the ins and outs, first figuring out if you got it, and then what you can do about it and why you should really care uh, uh, about Cogon Grass and getting rid of it. To do that, we're talking with Nancy Lowenstein. She's a extension specialist with, the Alabama Cooperative Extension System, the College of Forestry, Wildlife, and Environment at Auburn University, right, Nancy?
2: That is correct.
0: So, first off, tell us a little bit about what an extension specialist does. What, what's your role there?
2: Well, our role is to provide science-based information to landowners and other stakeholders in the state. We also provide backup information for regional and county extension agents throughout the state and try to um, share research information that's coming from professors, on campus
0: and elsewhere. You guys are really bridging the gap between the research that's being done and then you know the people that are trying to take this research and, and apply it out in the field. People like, like Butch and I, right? we're out there on our properties and we see something, we don't know what it is, kind of looks like grass. I need to figure that out. Uh, and then what are we gonna do to control it? Uh, I have started to see, luckily I haven't seen any on my place yet, but I have seen it on the neighboring landowner's property at least that what I think it is. So for, for folks that may not know, maybe just explain what grass is.
2: Well, cogongrass is a non-native invasive plant. It was introduced back around 1912 in Mobile. And then that was accidental introduction. It was used as a packing material for satsuma oranges. And then it was subsequently introduced several more times over the um, next several decades as um, potential forage crop but it has very little forage value and is very high in silica. So those were bust, but some of those plantings remain behind. It's considered one of the top 10 worst weeds in the world. And it's a federal noxious weed as well.
0: So you can tell it's got that silica component when you walk through it. It's not, not a comfortable thing to uh, stroll through if you got short pants on. You know, you and hear, you hear people throw around, it's a non-native invasive all the time. One of the things I always wonder about is like, a lot of these a lot, seems like a lot of these non-native invasives come from some part of Asia in a lot of cases. And I wonder if the folks in Asia are going like, well, that's that that's that North American crap that, you know, has come over here, you know. But but when you when you talk about a non-native invasive, what impactor is is Kogan grass? What negative impacts is it is it having for not only the environment, but also for landowners? If somebody sees this stuff, why do they need to get serious about getting rid of it?
1: Yeah. Why is it so bad?
2: Well, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, is it, it it shades and outcompetes other plants? So it just, you know, takes up all the growing space. So it reduces biodiversity. So after a while, you're just gonna have coconut grass there. And if that weren't enough, it also some studies show that it impacts nutrient cycling and it may be allelopathic. And that's probably a term that's not familiar to a lot of people, but allelopathic plants very um. I don't know, emit's not the right word, but compounds come from their um, roots or when they're biodegrading, chemicals are released that actually reduce the the growth of nearby plants. So it's not just physical shading, but there's also impacts on nutrients and on these allelopathic compounds that
1: actually actually, impacts the soil. That's interesting.
2: Right. So it could have, you know, kind of long term. And then if that were enough, it's also a fire adapted plant. That burns very, very, very hot. So even fire adapted species like those in longleaf ecosystems can be harmed or even you know killed, wiped out by grass. So grass fire comes through, cogongrass grass is very, very happy, comes back even stronger than it was before, but other plants that were in the area are going to be significantly damaged and set back.
0: You know, talking about damaging the other plants, I mean, you mentioned. That it's going to outcompete everything. So the native species that you you've got in the seed bank that are doing good things for your wildlife mm-hmm. uh, are not going to be able to prosper. And then when you talk when you're talking about the iliopathic effects, so would Kogan grass have a negative impact on timber that it is that is growing within? Like, will it can it harm say the growth of your your pine trees if if that's what you're doing with your property?
2: So. Will th- Definitely have an impact on young pine trees. There's not a lot of research yet showing how much it's impacting the growth of established trees, but there's always that fire hazard. Hmm. And if a wildfire comes through, you, know, you can get significant damage to even large trees. A study out of Florida from not too long ago suggested $35 million per a year impact of cone grass on the timber industry. Wow. Yeah. It's not insignificant. And oh, another thing that the impact of forestry is that it it influences, it impacts your options for management. Because you always have to be, you know, like say you want to use prescribed fire, which is a common tool. If you have Kogon grass in your stand, you know, you'll get flare up. So you have to be aware of that. You have to be cognizant of not spreading the cogon grass and making the problem worse if it's there. And then, you know, the cost of managing it. And controlling it if it is there. Hundreds of dollars per acre, potentially.
0: Yeah. I mean, you don't have to do research to know that if it's not there, it's not going to cause a problem. And I think the first step in getting rid of it is determine if this is actually what you have on your property. You got to be able to identify. I've, I've, I feel like I've gotten to the point where I can go, there it is. But what are some of the physical characteristics? Like what can people look for? And then, you know, also I'd like to know, are there any are there any look-alikes where people may think this is Cogon grass, but it's actually something like, I don't know, Johnson grass or something like that?
2: Right. So there's several things that make Cogon grass fairly easy to identify. First of all, it has a kind of a typical yellowish green color. So a little bit more yellowish than a lot of grasses. It's typically two to three feet tall, and it grows very densely. So if you have a big patch of Cogon grass with that bright yellowish green, it's pretty easy to spot, you know, if you're driving down the side of the road. Or is growing alongside the road. When it's blooming, it has very distinctive flowers, two to eight inches long and bright white. Once they're ready to shed their seeds, so those are very distinctive. But you know, that's only blooming for a short period of time in the early spring. In North Alabama, it may bloom as late as early June, though. So, and it can bloom in response to disturbance. But so, the flowers are distinctive. The grass, the um, the leaves are distinctive. It also has very distinctive below ground growth. So, over half the plant, it actually grows, half the plant biomass is underground. So, if you got a shovel and you're going to, if you dig that up, it's this huge mass of what looks at first like roots, but it's actually rhizomes, which are modified stems. And those are kind of a papery sheath on them. And if you kind of pull that sheath back, it's segmented. And another way you would notice is rhizomes is that they have really, really, really sharp points. Sharp enough that they can pierce skin, draw blood, and even will grow through small roots of other plants and rhizomes of coconut grass. So they're wicked. What about say?
0: I hate this grass. Nasty little dude. Yeah, that's not
2: fun. I'm I'm ready to kill
0: it. I can't wait.
2: It's
0: going to be amazing. Well, I mean, is there anything that it looks similar to? Like, are there ever, are there some lookalikes?
2: There are several lookalikes. One, so you mentioned Johnson grass, which at first glance can look like it, especially on you know, growing alongside the road, but the leaves of um, Johnson grass are typically wider. So comb grass, usually half an inch to an inch wide. Johnson grass is almost always more than an inch wide. The flowers are very different and Johnson grass does not have those rhizomes. In fact, there's several grasses that have, you know, either flowers or leaves that at first glance look like coconut grass, but if you get a shovel, you you know, dig it up, you're not going to find those rhizomes. So yay, no rhizomes, not coconut grass. There is, however, one native grass that looks a lot like coconut grass, and it does have those segmented white rhizomes, and that is yellow Indian grass, Sorghastrum nutans. And that one, that's confused a lot of people, including myself. Many times. So the best way to tell those apart is you have to look at the um the root of the leaf collar of the grass. So that's where the the blade of the grass attaches to the stem. And on cogon grass, it's just a gentle slope and there's a little bit of fine hairs on that. But on yellow Indian grass, there's a notch. Kind of if you, you open that up, it kind of looks like fox ears. And there's often a little bit of a purple tinge there so that's the best way to tell those two apart is with that leaf collar and they often grow in similar areas so
1: okay so they can be same region geographically yep good stuff
2: yeah but once you know to look for that leaf collar i don't know there's probably been a lot of yellow indian grass killed in the name of controlling cotton grass across (laughs) the southeast but once you know that trick you can tell them apart pretty easily
1: yes ma'am that definitely makes sense you know, I've seen, like Joe, Joe mentioned, we've seen some on our place. I definitely have seen some on our place around the Black Belt in Dallas County. Is coconut grass one of those things kind of where you you see it, obviously you want to get rid of it. But if you do not disturb it, will it kind of stay in its general area or will it spread on its own? I know, you know, people are like, don't bush hog it. Don't even drive over it. Don't touch it. Don't walk through it. It can spread, you know, just by sneezing on it. I don't even look at it. Right, don't even look at it, it's going to spread. So tell us a little bit about the growth pattern and kind of the, the reproductive pattern. I would assume that's how it spreads.
2: Right. Luckily, simple sneezing won't spread it, but... um, <laughs> Good. So a non-disturbed patch, and they are clonal growing from those rhizomes. So, and it's estimated they're going to grow probably 15 feet a year. So they're going to be spreading out just wow. radially on their own. So so that's they'll spread underground by those rhizomes. They also spread by seed and the seed is windblown. So, you know, and the seed's not gonna go that far unless, you know, if you get a hurricane or a storm that can spread them. There's nuances in whether or not the seeds are gonna be viable. I don't know if you wanna get into all that detail. Probably not. The best thing is just to assume that the seeds are viable. And um, so they spread by both rhizomes and the seeds. And the seeds, one thing too, you know, it's a problem when one place you see rest coming in is pastures. And then, you know, you might have seeds getting into hay. And then that's a way it, you know, moves from farm to farm if people get um, infested hay.
0: You know, the way I always see it spreading seems like is on the right-of-ways. You've got equipment that is managing.
1: Going from place to place. and The roadside. You know, kind of big moves. So, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And,
0: you know, it's getting on their equipment. And then they're going and working in the dirt and other places and they move it around. And I was actually on a property not too long ago, we were way back in the woods and came into this opening and it was just solid cogan grass. And I was like, how the heck did it get back here? And as we were leaving the property, there was a patch right there on the roadside. And it was pretty obvious, you know, he had bush hogged out there by the main road the right of way. And then he'd gone back and bush hogged his food plot back in the woods. And sure enough, just had created a, you know, had transplanted it doing that.
2: Food plots is actually one place where you often see it showing up for the first time. So, you know, if people use equipment on an infested site, then travel to another, you know, hunting club or whatever without cleaning the equipment, that's where it often shows up in the edges of food plots. Another way it's spread is like you mentioned on mowers, um, also on dirt roads with grading equipment also gets moved around if you're putting in a fire line. If Mm -hmm. there's coconut grass around, you can move those rhizomes. So when there um, is coconut grass around, try to if you have to work in it, a lot of times you can't avoid it, but try to start in the clean areas and end up in the infested areas instead of starting in the infested and moving out. But we also see it showing up in flower beds, where because you know, a lot of it's in South Alabama, where a lot of our potted plants and nursery stock comes from, or if mm-hmm. you get plants from your favorite Aunt Sally or somebody. Well, or I Aunt would America.
0: imagine pine straw is probably going to have an effect too, because you know, you've got pine straw harvesting taking place. If you've got coconut grass in those areas, it gets baled up in the pine straw, then you put that in your flower bed. It's just bad stuff. We need to, right everybody that sees it, that owns the land needs to do what they can to try to get rid of it is what I'm hearing you say.
2: Exactly. And the sooner you start to try to get rid of it, the better because it's much easier to control a small patch than to control something that's well-established and covering, you know, acres.
1: Sure. Well, we talked about it a little bit as far as getting rid of it. You know, we can't mow it. We can't burn it. How do we get rid of this stuff, Stancy?
2: Right. So mowing only suppresses it and actually it just makes it bloom shorter. So mowing does no good whatsoever. Burning just makes it worse. So there's really two options. If it's growing somewhere where you can get equipment in, tillage will break it up, but it has to be continuous tillage or frequent tillage, I should say. So you break it up, reduce the... Resources of the rhizomes, and then, you know, over time they'll just die, or you know, bust it up, let it grow, and treat the new growth with glyphosate. So tillage works. The other thing that works is herbicides, and there's two herbicides that work glyphosate and appear Do you want me to go into detail on that, or you want to?
0: Yeah. Well, let me take you back to the tillage component.
1: Yeah. I'm a little interested in that as well.
0: Because, you know, we don't want to move it around, right? Like we we just talked about, they're managing right-of-ways, then they're Being using that equipment in other places to the region, spreading it. You know, so it seems like to me, just listening to you explain those two methods, I would probably want to go herbicide first and avoid tillage just to not get it on any more equipment and have the potential of moving it. But is that is that the right move? I mean, would herbicide be number one and then tillage plus herbicide be number two?
2: It depends on the situation. So, you know, if you got cooking coming into a pasture or, you know, farmland and you could get equipment in there, the tillage could be an option. In fact, there was one area we were doing some long-term research and there is a farmer in the field next to us that had been full of Cogon grass and we're there treating our Cogon grass, treating our Cogon grass. In the meantime, he's gotten rid of the Cogon grass and is growing peanuts. And, I don't, you know, it's much faster. Yeah. Get rid of it. So, I mean, but that's not an option in most situations. And like you said, there is that danger of spreading Cogon grass on the equipment. So mm. you have to be very, very careful not to make the situation work. and infrequent tillage or shallow tillage is just going to make the problem worse.
0: Well, and like I'm thinking about the spot that I've identified, it it's tillage not an option there. It, you right. know, it's it's on a uh, roadside on a high bank. You're not tilling that area, and butch, you're you I couldn't me, tell mine here. It's on a hill. In, yeah, it's in a hill. It's in timber it's country. In a, in a, I mean,
1: in a pine plantation and right. a man on a hill.
0: Yeah, so we got to go herbicide. You mentioned, I think I heard you right, a masapier chemistry. Did you say glyphosate also worked? Right.
2: Glyphosate and imazapyr are the two chemicals that will work.
0: Do they work? Do they have to be applied together or or is this a uh, just either or situation?
2: Either or or a tank mix. OK. So, And what you choose depends on the situation as well. So both glyphosate and imazapyr are non-selective, which means that anything that any plants they get on is going to be severely damaged or killed. So you have to be very careful. Glyphosate. Is not soil active, so it's probably the safer bet. Especially if you have, if you're under any hardwoods or any plants that you don't want to take any chance of damaging, you would go with glyphosate. Glyphosate is not as effective though as the imazapyr. So imazapyr works better, but it is soil active. So there's, you know, any hardwoods or you know other perennials or, or you know, herbaceous plants will be killed yeah. by the imazapyr most pines are relatively resistant to imazapyr except Mm longleaf longleaf will be damaged by high rates of imazapyr so you're really really careful
0: that's kind of the big issue i've seen um in the southern part of the state with and i love the idea i'm I'm putting longleafs back on my place uh i believe in the longleaf but that is one issue is that when you go back with longleafs you are then unable to use those herbicides and and if you've you're trying to do kogan grass control you're going to have an issue there because you're going to end up having to kill your long leaves to to get it under control. So I want to come back to that particular aspect in a minute but going back to the herbicides is there a time of year that you cannot apply herbicides on cogan
2: grass? Well you have to have living green material there. So, it dies back in the winter. You'll have that brown thatch. You can't spray the brown thatch. It's not going to, you won't have any uptake. I mean, you might get a little bit of soil uptake with mass pure, but so it has to be growing. Our research shows that best um, results were if you treat in the late summer into the early fall, so like August into October, but you can't treat so late into the fall that you have the chance of frost damage. So, you need at least a month prior to of killing freeze so that there's enough time for the herbicide to act and get down into the rhizomes because your objective with herbicide is to kill the rhizomes until you've killed all that material underground it's just going to keep coming back
0: just like when you burn a sweet gum you could top kill it but it's coming back you got to burn it again so Mm -hmm. most areas in the southeast you know you're La- your first frost date is going to be mid-November-ish, you know, give or take a few weeks, depending on where you are. So you're talking about basically, if if you're going to treat this, you need to do this before early October, sometime in that time frame. Right. And you know, going back to the Amazapyr chemistry, with it being soil active, that uh, another reason to not choose that Amazapyr, I guess, would be in in applications where you're planning on planting something
1: eventually right right
0: afterwards so we're talking about food plots or pastures that things of that nature if you go putting a imazapyr down you're gonna have to wait a while before anything's going to grow about how long will a imazapyr stay soil active do you know
2: it might depend a little bit on the soil type but you know it's going to be a couple months at least although in our trials you know we did see you know early successional weedy species coming in fairly quickly after treatment but um one other thing before i forget about treatment is that It would be a complete and total miracle to treat coconut grass once Mm. and have it controlled even with the mazapir you're looking at you know once a year for two to three years okay wow and one thing we found with glyphosate though is that if if you did have the option to treat twice a year with glyphosate say in may and again later in the summer after it starts to grow back that does work as well as a mazapir But, you know, a lot of the cost of treatment is actual going out to the site.
1: So it's right. Right. a lot of cost. Multiple applications. Yeah,
0: it just depends. Everything. I mean, the good news is that you've got options and it's going to depend totally on your scenario. I mean, like for me, I'm usually up at my place in the off season at least, you know, at least once a month, if not more. And then during, you know, during the early fall, I'm there much more than that. So that that would be a good option for me. You know, go spray it basically now if I wanted to and then come mm-hmm. back again. Uh, around the time basically you could spray it when you're planting your your summer food plots and spray it again when you plant your fall food plots would be a good a good time frame you're already spraying those areas knock out some kogan grass if you see it
2: you need at least 12 to 18 inches of new growth before respraying them or if you did want to spray in the spring
0: now nancy with those rhizomes spreading underground do you need to only spray what the vegetation you see, or do you need to kind of buffer that area with additional herbicide to really get it?
2: That's a good question, because those rhizomes may be going out and not sending up the shoots yet. So if you're using glyphosate, which is not soil active, that won't do any good because you're not going to get uptake. But if you are using imazapir, though, some people do go out another 10 or 15 feet and um just to try to get any rhizomes that might be good, you know, spreading out that way. Because some people do see that. You know, if you just limit your spraying to the patch that you get a bit of a halo around the area you treated. Hmm. Like I said, you can do that with the masopier, but it's a waste with glyphosate. Let's come back
0: to the longleaf question. So in that scenario where you've you've got long leaves in the ground and then you now have found Hogan grass on your property, is your only option to Kill the longleafs along with the grass, or is there something else you can do
2: well it depends on how long or how old the the longleaf is and how bad the grass is so once yeah that's a depends kind of question
1: well i would assume if if the pine trees are young enough that the grass could choke them out so you're hosed either way yeah
2: right if it's really really thick you might be able to run a burn through there on a perfect day where you have high soil moisture content and you know you don't get a super hot fire and um but you know you still burning's not
0: (laughs) yeah then then you're compounding the the grass problem so it almost seems like you find this stuff i mean to me if it was my property And I was dealing with this, I'd say, well, I'm going to sacrifice a few long leaves to save the greater stand or, or maybe run a fire break around it and, you know, burn what I could burn and and really treat that area and just plant some new, plant some new long leaves. I mean, the way I look at it is, and I might be wrong, but the way I look at it is, is, you know, you get, you get tornadoes, you get insects, you get. Wind throw, you get a lot of things that can kill trees. And to me, having the grass gone would be worth sacrificing a few trees. Now, I guess if it was taking up acres and acres and acres and acres. Right.
1: Have to be situational. You might
0: also. have to let well, it, you know, you let it go until you can harvest those trees. And then, but man, you'd be talking about a long time.
2: If you had acres and acres in an established stand, what you would want to do is control that grass before you replant. Mm-hmm. So that's the ideal situation. And if you came across just a small patch in a a young stand of longleaf, then I would just well you could treat it well you could try to avoid the trees as best as you can, but um if it was right up in the trees you might have to sacrifice those
0: yeah well and a lot of the a lot of the application methods you know that we when we think about herbicide i, I mean i know i usually envision a skitter driving through a pine plantation and spraying it everywhere but there are you can do things that have back, to backpack be that crew yeah, don't have be to be a little crazy. more
1: right. precise yeah precise. A yeah. 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 spot treatment that's right yeah.
2: and well, if you, kn- you used a lower um concentration of a masquerade you know, the long leaf might be okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd rather, like I said, I'd rather have it gone and, and get it gone. But you know, those kind of questions are going to be hard to say, this is what you should do because it's going to be very uh, site specific. You're going to need to get a management plan in order for your place, for what your goals are, the type of timber you've got, what are you trying to accomplish? Where are you in, in your growth cycle? it'd be impossible for us to say this is this is the way, you know, and it would apply to everyone. So for people that are looking for resources to be able to maybe get somebody out onto their property and say, first off, is this Cogan grass or yellow Indian grass? So, you know, that'd be step one. And then all right, how am I going to get rid of this stuff? I need I need to get a plan together. Where can people go? Like, What What can they use? What resources are out there for them to be able to figure this out if they want to get on top of it?
2: Well, your state forestry commission is a good place to start. Several states have active programs. Alabama's got one now and a Georgia forest commission is great with, um, they're very proactive getting rid of coconut grass. And then of course, NRCS often has resources available and I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention your local extension office. You know, I'm happy to, you know, folks have good photographs of mystery plants that they think might be Cogon grass. I'm happy to take a look at them and see whether or not I think it's Cogon grass.
0: Yeah. When you see something, first thing is just snap a quick photo, right? We all got a phone in our pockets pretty much now. Grab a quick photo and you can come back to it later. You don't necessarily have to have somebody make a site visit to get that part figured out.
2: Right. But like I said, one thing to be very, very careful, you know, you need to get good photographs. Mm-hmm. So get a picture of that leaf collar. So it can be, you know, you can rule out that it's not yellow Indian grass. And if you can get a shovel and dig it up and see whether those rhizomes are there, that will go a long way in helping you determine whether or not it's Cogon grass.
0: Nancy, you know, we've had cogan grass, I guess now over a hundred years, like you said earlier, and there's a bunch of resources out there like you mentioned for for landowners and and for folks that want to try to identify and get rid of it are we turning the tide at all though i mean is it is it getting less invasive uh or is this is a problem growing bigger and bigger
2: unfortunately it keeps getting worse and it's spreading further throughout the state it's now in every county in alabama except for three or four and um you know florida Mississippi, Georgia, it's so up in South Carolina, North Carolina, even maybe a spot or two in Tennessee and Virginia. So it continues to spread, and um there's really not an there's not enough money that the government and others can throw at Congress to make this go away. Yeah, so, it's,
0: it's going to be have have to be something that people just kind of take initiative on, and and they need to care. I mean it. it when i see this and and i've seen this firsthand showing people properties and when they when there's a savvy buyer who understands what kogan grass is and the and the problems that it represents i've had people literally look at kogan grass on a piece of property and go i don't want to buy this this has got kogan grass and as a landowner you know your your goal may be aesthetic your goal may be wildlife your goal may be timber but you know, you've also always got to think about trying to improve the value of your property or not do anything to decrease the value of your property. And grass is definitely going to be one of those things, along with a host of other non-native invasives that that can definitely do that. So if folks want to get in touch with somebody like you, Nancy, or, or reach out to somebody, uh, you know, their local extension specialist, kind of find the person for their area or, or their area of expertise, what's the best way for them to get in touch with somebody that's local to them or very knowledgeable on the topic, like you are on Cogan
2: Grass? So, in Alabama, the best way to get an extension person is just to look at the um, our website, which is very simple aces.edu, aces.edu, and just um, do a search on Cogan Grass. We've got a publication on identification with um, comparison to lookalikes. We have a management frequently asked question pub. We have something on grass and Fire and how to prevent um, moving hitchhikers. And then, you know, the other state extension systems also have a lot of resources.
0: The information's out there. You just gotta you just gotta care enough to look for it. And uh hopefully, you know, today if, if you didn't know what grass was going into this, uh you know now and you know what to look for and be a part of the solution. Nancy, thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right, folks, we'll be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of the businesses that make this show free for you every episode. This week's show is brought to you by the Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. Finally, a Trail Cam viewer that actually works. Lowdown's high-speed trail cam viewer has flippin' fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Lowdown is a dedicated viewer/slash photo manager made for one thing and one thing only: fast, uncomplicated viewing of your trail cam images and videos. Lowdown makes viewing large numbers of images fast and easy. It allows you to easily delete individuals or groups of selected images. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also brought to you by First South Farm Credit. What does a farm mean to you? Maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go relax or enjoy the outdoors. Whatever the farm means to you, First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. As a successful financial cooperative, First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. I hate this stuff, but I'm ready to end this podcast, get in my truck and drive up to my place and Put the break out the, the backpack
1: sprayer and get to work. I agree, man. It sounds terrible. I didn't realize that it could poke you and all that with the crazy roots. <laughs> uh, so not only are we dealing with it above the ground, we got to worry about it below the ground now as well. Right. Yeah, man. That was interesting stuff. Obviously, we, you know, you and I are, are aware of it. I think the biggest thing that I picked up from today's show is we're going to have to go out of our way as landowners and, you know, habitat managers to, to identify this stuff and go after it because it is an issue.
0: Yeah, you're going to have to look for it number 1. I mean, that's how many I mean. people are mowing it, Probably burning it and they don't even know they've got it number 1 and they're spreading it that way cuz they just didn't know that that's not something that's supposed to be there. And I I take those trips all the time, you know, with folks that they love to hunt, they love they they love the idea of, of owning land, but you know, they can't tell the difference between a, a patch of Johnson grass, a patch of Indian grass, a patch of Kogan grass and you know, if they see it, they wouldn't know what it was, and they definitely don't know that it's it's a problem. Yeah, you know, you heard Nancy say it. I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna beat this, it's gonna have to be more effort. people becoming aware of
1: it, right? And that's and then, okay if you don't know if yeah. you don't know what it looks like. But sounds like we need to figure it well, out.
0: Well, it's, it's been around our whole lives, and we definitely right. didn't know what it was our, that whole time. Um, no, but you know, I mean, it, it it's it's not it can't be a money thing because even though there's there's money out there to help with with this problem. It, there's not enough, but I mean, look at what you spend on a food plot. I mean, by the time you get your seed and your fertilizer and your diesel and, and your time and uh, you know, your herbicide and everything that you do to go plant an acre of wildlife forage, right. You may be $500 into that food plot per acre. This doesn't cost that much to go get herbicide glyphosate or mazapir load it up in a tank sprayer on your UTV or uh you, you know or, or even have a, a backpack, even sprayer. backpack sprayer or even just have a crew come in and do it for you. Yeah. It's it's not going to take that much. And even if it does, that will be providing, you know, for your wildlife, for your property value. You know, if I see this stuff on my place, it's getting nuked immediately. Yeah. From going forward. I hope I hope that more people are you know, becoming aware of it and when they see it they they get get serious and get moving
1: yeah i mean talking about price it don't cost you anything to hook up to your well, a little bit of diesel hook up to your plow and till the mess out of it
0: yeah if you got the ability to do that you yeah. know if it's
1: if it's in a place where you can get to it and back your yeah. tractor up in there and just get for the me
0: you know for for me the the thing that kind of scares me the most about it is is you know the fact that burning makes it worse because right. I want to be able to burn my property. That's that's the reason I'm going back, you know, getting away from lob lollies and going back with longleaf is I want to be able to continue to burn the property throughout the, the early stages of, of that pine tree growing up. You know, I don't want to lose that value uh, for those native plants and for the wildlife. And if I lose the ability to burn and I can't, tre- and I can't treat it because I've right. planted longleaf, like, Okay, that's a big problem. So that's an issue for sure. Yeah, you need to. If you see this stuff, you need to get on top of it early, uh, and and get get a professional in. Get somebody who knows what they're talking about, knows what they're doing. And if you don't feel comfortable doing it, make sure that you don't let this get and take hold on your property.
1: Agreed, man. Good show. I enjoyed it.
0: Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word HUNTING to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word HUNTING to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's show is brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. They now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. And also brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients for your deer? Check out Southern Buck. Your deer will love it. Visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. And also brought to you by Mallard Bay Outdoors. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Built by sportsmen for sportsmen mallardbay.com, and also by Bucks Island Marines. Bucks Island is a full-service facility that sells new and used boats and motors. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588, and also First South Farm Credit. First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, lowering your cost of borrowing. Check them out at firstsouthland.com, or call them at 800 955 1722 they're an equal housing lender